you take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in the 65th chapter of Isaiah this morning. We're all together this morning with our, our kids. There, the infant and toddler room is open downstairs if you need to pop down there to take your little ones down there. But uh, kids, if you need any activities or anything like that, ask your parents first, obviously. But there are coloring sheets in the back. There are coloring crayons. There's a few other things back there for you to pick up if you, if you need to make use of those. Any point during the service, if you feel like, feel like you want to color on something, it's back there for you. Isaiah chapter 65 is where we are at this morning. Isaiah 65. We're going to begin in verse 17 and read through verse 25, which is the end of the chapter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful back there still. I can see through, through the window. Feel free to stand up and grab one um, and, uh, and look at these words in front of you as I read them this, this morning and as we explore together what God has communicated through His Holy Spirit, through His servant Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Let me read this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Nor, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the, of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. We've explored together during Advent several selections from the book of Isaiah. We started out in Isaiah chapter 9, and we saw God's zealous activity bringing about God's purposes for His people, and that results for us in our, in our joy. God acting in accordance to who He is brings about joy for His people. And then the next week, the second week in Advent, we, we, we looked at Isaiah chapter 11. We saw that Jesus Christ comes to earth to fulfill all that God has purposed, and that is to, in fact, restore peace between God and man. He restores us back to the word is shalom. Last week, we saw in Isaiah 52 and 53, a very familiar passage to us that the way God restores his people to himself is through substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, the greatest possible, possible demonstration of love is God giving up Jesus as a substitute, suffering on our behalf, 
And so we ask ourselves as we've moved through this, and hopefully this has been apparent, but we ask this uh, of ourselves as we look at these verses, what does this all have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Jesus breaking into our, our world? And that event, the coming of Christ, is the linchpin of those things that we've talked about, the joy, the, the peace, the love, and now this morning as we consider Isaiah 65, the hope. And without Jesus coming to earth, the hope of eternal life in the presence of God, that hope is a complete pipe dream. With Jesus coming to earth, the hope of eternal life in the presence of God is an absolute certainty. Nothing short of concrete, unwavering certainty. And this is where we must not pay Jesus lip service. Especially when we come to Christmas. Because we oftentimes make flippant reasons for the season comments. But rather, we must, as people, as we look together at this book, at the book of Isaiah, we must, without question, make every waking moment a meditation on His absolute and infinite worth. And Isaiah shows us exactly how it all comes together. And he does it with 700 years before Jesus would even even walk on the earth. If you think about what's going on in 2019, almost 2020, if we think about 700 years ago, that's a long time, right? If we go back 700 years from our point in time, the Renaissance hadn't yet happened. The bubonic plague hadn't yet hit Europe. Chaucer hadn't written Canterbury Tales. The Ming Dynasty wasn't a thing in China yet. And none of that really means much to us because it doesn't really affect much of our day-to-day. We're pretty ahistorical. We think of the 1970s as ancient history. (laughs) But Isaiah writes about how God was going to fulfill His purposes among His people centuries before it even came. And when Jesus comes to earth, born of a virgin in a barn, everything happened that happened 700 years earlier suddenly had dramatic importance. It had incredible, incredible implications. And so this text in, in Isaiah chapter 65, it, it shows us that because Jesus came to earth, the hope of eternal life in the presence of God is nothing short of concrete, unwavering certainty. Let me say that again. Because Jesus came to earth, the hope of eternal life in the presence of God is nothing short of concrete, unwavering certainty. So let's consider briefly the hope that's contained here in in this text. And I'm going to say it like this. I'm going to say it like this. And we'll have three points that we'll, we'll weave in here. Jesus shows us the hope of an eternity spent with God by giving us a clear picture of God as creator, as God as sustainer, and God as restorer. Jesus shows us the hope of an eternity spent with God by giving us a clear picture of God as creator, God as sustainer, and God as restorer. So as we consider this text, my prayer is that this text will encourage us during this time of year to hope in God, to bolster our hope this Christmas, to discard our flimsy, finite things that we are hoping in, And that we would be firmly fixed in God's unchanging character and purposes. So let's consider these three things. Look at with me, look with me at verses 
17 and 18, right at the beginning of, of our text. 17 and 18. This is God speaking, so this I here is God himself. If you look at the beginning of verse 17, you see, I create. And then if you look in the middle of verse 18, you see that again twice, I create and I create. God is the creator. At the beginning of 2020, just in a couple weeks, we're going to take some time, really kind of the first half of 2020, and go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to spend time exploring the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in, in the Bible. And then in the beginning of all things, Genesis tells us right away in chapter 1, verse 1, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was contained in the heavens and the earth. But after those six days of creating, God rests on the seventh. But after those six days of, of creating, that didn't end God's creative work. It didn't end God's creative work because it's not just something God does, but it's who God is. God is creator. Creation is not just something that he does, but it's part of who he is. And he has not ceased from displaying his creative character to this day. And we see this clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. It was by a word, God spoke, and God created the heavens and the earth. And all of their contents. Jesus, we read it for our call to worship this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the word incarnate, the word, who, word who, that took on flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. He is the very word of God. And we could say that he is the agency that stood behind creation. The implications of this that go forward all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, Behold, look, I am making all things new. I am recreating all things, is what he says. We ask ourselves the question, well, how, how can Jesus make all things new? Well, again, he is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, but he is the very agency, again, the very power that stands behind God's creative activity at the beginning and at the end. So when Isaiah quotes God in, in verse 17 of chapter 65, it is through Jesus Christ as the one who brings about all of God's purposes. He is the one through whom a new heavens and a new earth will come about. Without the coming of Jesus at Christmas, there would be no teeth to the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. It would be ink on a page. But because of Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth, the promise of them is concrete, unwavering reality. We ask ourselves, do we believe that? Do we, do we believe that? Have you given that thought in the last three weeks, four weeks? Have you given thought to the fact that because Jesus came to earth, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth is a concrete, unwavering certainty? 
Are you treating this earth as a thing that will soon be forgotten? Are you always, are you always fretting over this or that? Something that really won't matter in 15 to 20 years, or maybe even 15 to 20 minutes, let alone 15 to 20 million years. The disciples, we see this in the Gospels over and over again. The disciples are expert fretters. They're really good at it. Consider Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark writes, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus, he said to them, let us go across the other side and leave the crowd. And they took him with their, with and they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love the question that they asked to Jesus. I love this question. That they, that they proposed to Jesus. Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? And maybe that's you this morning. You're wondering if anyone cares. Your life is swallowing you up in depression and sadness and despair and sickness and anxiety. And much like the disciples, you're facing a storm that feels like it'll never relent. Friends, both Isaiah 65 and Mark chapter 4, and really the whole of Scripture, bring the soothing and authoritative Word of God over your life. Peace be still. Your Bible probably puts like exclamation points at the end. It's like Jesus was shouting, peace be still. But there's, there's no exclamation points in the original language. To be fair, there's no punctuation at all. But there's no, there's no explanation. There's no reason for us to think that Jesus was speaking more loudly than just a standard speaking voice. The waves and winds know their Creator. The Creator has ultimate authority over His creation. And the waves and the winds obey. Katarina von Schlegel wrote one of my favorite hymns, Be Still My Soul. And the two lines in the second stanza right at the end say, Be still my soul. The waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them well, he dwelt below. The storm heard a familiar voice. The voice that made them. And they relented. Isaiah's appeal to God as Creator tells His people that they need not worry or fret. That they should replace their fretting with rejoicing. That comes through unwavering certainty 
a surety of hope. God is in the business of bringing about newness. And Jesus Christ is the channel through which that newness is coming. A cold night in a barn 2,000 years ago began the recreation of the world. But then we see God as a sustainer. Look at verse 20. God is sustainer. Not only does God create, He also sustains. Isaiah writes that infants won't die in their infancy in this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. A young man won't die when, until he's a hundred. Now Isaiah's understanding of all of this may not be fully developed, but Jesus says that it's not just a hundred years that you'll get to live which seemed like a long time to Isaiah. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it's life everlasting, Jesus tells us. It's the eternal life. Isaiah isn't meaning that people will die in new creation. He's simply saying that the life that eludes you, all of the time that could have been yours, that's going to be robbed because of sin and disease and sickness and car accidents and cancer, all of that life is going to be in the rear view mirror. The life that eludes you in this earth, that life will be yours. And this again keys on the idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment that eludes you here on earth, no matter how hard you try, you'll be totally fulfilled in new creation. Because you recognize with outwavering that it is Jesus Christ who secures you, that Jesus Christ that holds you fast, Jesus Christ that will not let you go. Paul writes to the church in Colossae that Jesus is both creator and sustainer. In chapter 1, verses 16-17, through 17, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And here's the word on the sustaining. And in Him all things hold together. Jesus sustains all things. He gives us a clear picture of God's character by holding all things together. We ask ourselves, what prevents me from being fulfilled? The answer to the Bible gives us is sin. What prevents me from living forever in the presence of God? The answer the Bible gives is death. Jesus, Jesus takes care of both. And He will hold all things together here and now and into the perfect eternity that God has planned for His people. God is creator, God is sustainer. Finally then this morning, in verses 21 through 23, we see God as restorer. God as restorer. Now we're in the 65th chapter of the book of Isaiah. We're not no longer, when we started out in the book, we saw the incoming Assyrian invasion and the incoming exile that was, was coming for God's people. But the first, that's the part that the first part of the book is hitting on. But when we get to Isaiah 65 and really the last third of the book, Isaiah is speaking from the perspective of what is going to come post-exile after God's people are carried off into captivity. 
And the exile brought about a time in the history of God's people where what is described in verses 21 through 20, uh, 23 would not be a reality. Essentially, what, God, what Isaiah is talking about in verse 22. When carried off into exile, all that God's people built, like their houses, weren't inhabited by them. They didn't harvest the grapes in their own vineyards. And ultimately, Isaiah points out the evil in that. That's an evil thing to work and to not reap the benefits of your labor. That is not what God intended in the garden. It's not right. But in this future that God promises, He restores God's people so that they would work with their hands and the work of their hands would yield great benefit for them. In new creation, I have good news, friends. In new creation, there won't be taxes. I heard an amen. The government won't have to take their cut because the government is on the shoulders of the one who created and is sustaining all things. And this one, Jesus Christ, he owns everything. And the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. You are his subject, and he takes great pleasure to empower you to take and to eat of the benefit, the fruit of the labor, what you purpose yourself to do, you receive the benefit of. You will work hard, and God will graciously give you all things. Your labor won't be in vain. It will be sweet, and it will be rewarding, and you will rejoice that your work is unto the Lord, and you will be satisfied. And this is, again, what it was intended in the garden, and the reality that sin, and the reality that death prevents. But when God through Jesus restores us, when God through Jesus restores us, like what we're celebrating right now in the Advent season. We see the restoration coming to us in, in another Advent. Advent, again, means arrival. And Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago. But our celebration of Advent shouldn't stop in just looking behind us, but looking forward as well. There is a second Advent. And so we celebrate a historical reality that Jesus 2,000 years ago broke in, but also a future certainty that Jesus came, Jesus is coming. Jesus will return and will bring about and finalize everything that that first advent kicked off. So we draw a conclusion here as we come to the end of our time I want you to see something that God is bringing about and is for both for us now and both to come, and also to come. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. We skipped over it, but I want you to go back there and then we'll look at verse, verse 24 and 25 also. Verse 18 and 19 also. Isaiah writes, But be glad and rejoice forever that in which I create in that which I create. For, I be, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The reason we can rejoice and be a gladness is because God is restoring creation, because He's making all 
things new. Isaiah says God's people are a joy and a gladness. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are in Christ. You are joined together with Christ. God, you are part of God's people, and God has made you a joy and a gladness. We must ask ourselves the question, is this, is this true of us? Is this true of us? Are we a joy and a gladness? Is this evident to Jamestown? Are we stuffy and grumpy and mumbling as we walk through Cashwise or Hugo's or Walmart upset because they're all sold out of almond bars? What would it look like if we were a joy and a gladness? How would we even go about being a joy and a gladness? Well, we are commanded to be joyful and to rejoice. And when we exhibit joy, and when we rejoice, and when we are glad, we exhibit gladness. What reason do we have to rejoice and be glad? The God who we serve is a creator God. The one who has made us new, a new creation, has made us to rejoice and be glad in Him. Friends, let's just not act joyfully. We can conjure up a little bit of joy here and there, I suppose. Let's not just act joyfully as some conjured robe of hypocrisy that we adorn ourselves in when we come to church. But let's be joyful and be glad, realizing that it is God who created us afresh and to rejoice and be glad. But there is another side to this coin. Look at verse 19. Not only are we to rejoice and be glad and to be a joy and a gladness, but we are also, or rather God is also, rejoicing and glad over us. God will delight in us. He will find joy and gladness in His people. And here's a great hope that we have, a great promise that belongs to us. That God, the creator and the sustainer of all things, looks at us, looks at his people, and he rejoices. He's not a grumpy God rolling his eyes when we act foolishly. He looks at us. He's not just hurling trials at us and laughing cruelly. He looks at us and he rejoices in us. He is glad in us. And friends, it is Jesus Christ that makes this all possible. The new creation that He makes us. We are recreated with the ability to please God, to honor God, to rejoice and be glad in Him. God initiates all of that in us. Verse 24, look, God answers before we even call out to Him. Before they call, I will answer. Well, they are yet speaking. I will hear. He knows what we need before we finish asking for it. What we need is the knowledge of what we are as new creations in Christ and the certainty of hope that we have that will inevitably lead us to rejoice and to be glad. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I, I want this hope. I'm done with these flimsy, feeble solutions. 
I want something unwavering and something concrete. Jesus stands before you as the solution. Don't let another moment go by. Run to Him and He will offer you forgiveness of sins. He will make you right with God and He will secure you in eternal joy and in gladness. Friends, it is my prayer that we, all of us who are in Christ, it is my prayer that we would look back to the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago and rejoice and be glad. Because that event has strongly solidified our position before God and given us a great certainty of hope that our God, the Creator and the Sustainer, will restore us and will restore all things. Let's pray.